everybody. Welcome to Step Left, a podcast about all things politically left, brought to you by Apollo Alta High School's Anti Magazine and KPLY. I'm your host, Michaela Seal. These past few months have been bleak for the Asian American community. Hate crimes against Asians have gone up by 150%. It seems that almost every day I hear stories of violence. An old man's car set on fire. An Asian woman being urinated on in a New York subway. A man being stabbed five times on his way home. When I hear these stories, I think about my own grandma. I think about my friends' relatives. I think about myself. And I get afraid. Angry, even. I am desperate for change. And I'm not the only one. Andrew Yang, who ran for president in the 2020 election, is now running for mayor of New York, as crazy as that sounds. And his idea to stop the hate crimes? More funding for the NYPD Asian Hate Crime Task Force. Basically, cops. Similarly, the Senate passed a Asian American Hate Crime Bill, which also aims to empower the police and establish a quote-unquote hate crime unit within the police force. To the despair of leftist Asians, it would seem like the increased calls for reliance on the police are a popular idea. In the rallies I've attended, speakers emphasize the need to report hate crimes to the police. But don't get me wrong, it's not like no one has ever thought of police alternatives before. In fact, in Chicago, there is a group called Block Club Chicago, which has successfully melded vaccine registration and mutual aid. Similarly, there are groups within the Bay Area, such as Chinatown Safety Patrol, which helps escort elderly using community members without reliance on the police. So, are police really the solution? In a country with a long history of racism, from the Chinese Exclusion Act to the Japanese internment camps, can we truly trust the same entity that created a culture of racism to fight racism? Here to speak more on this is Chinese-American prison abolitionist, freelance journalist, and the author of the book, Resistance Behind Bars, The Struggles of Incarcerated Women, Victoria Law. Uh, so thank you for coming on to my show. Yeah, you're very welcome. First of all, obviously with the rise of anti-Asian hate crimes and like if especially what happened in Atlanta, uh, things do not feel so great. Um, so mm-hmm. like as another Asian American, um, how do you feel about the rise of hate crimes? Are you surprised? I am not surprised. Uh, because we, the United States has a long history of racism and xenophobia and misogyny, as well as homophobia and transphobia. So there's a long list of marginalized people who have experienced violence, uh, both at the hands of individual people, as well as state violence, meaning, you know, uh, inability to access certain opportunities. And I mean, for Asians, this goes all the way back to the 19th century with the 1875 Page Act that uh, prohibited Chinese women from coming over on the grounds that they might be prostitutes or they might be sex workers uh, to the uh, Chinese Exclusion Act to, you know, the laws that prohibited Asian people or non-white people from owning property. So we have a long history and what happens is we have to see the two of them as being linked. So we can't say that, uh, you know, the individual violence that we see on the street is divorced from these larger systems of violence that people have been facing, like the inability to own their own home, their inability to own their own business, their inability to be able to bring their families to the United States. Um, You know, 
are not divorced because what happens at the top has that effect of telling people lower on you know the social ladders that this kind of hatred of other people is okay you know and that emboldens people to act with more impunity against other people so i mean we saw that when then president trump called uh, the coronavirus, the China virus, and the Kung flu, and blamed it on Chinese people and Asian people. And that emboldened people who might be hostile to Asian people or were hostile to Asian people to act against them. So, I mean, I don't think people who normally were fine with Chinese people suddenly decided they were going to go attack people on the street. But it also redirected the focus of their angers and their frustrations with this never ending pandemic, uh, people not having jobs, people having their social safety nets cut down um, from saying to the lawmakers, well, why aren't you taking care of us? Why do I pay? Why have I paid 20, 30, 40 years of taxes and I'm in danger of losing my home or I've lost my job to just blaming the person that they see on the street instead who has no power to be able to act against them in those ways. Right. Um, and I feel like a lot of what I'm seeing with the anti-Asian hate movement is, I mean, like, obviously I support it, right? But like, is that they haven't really like seen the connection between like system and like individuals. Mm -hmm. They just think it's like an individual problem. Like, oh, this yeah. one person is very racist mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. Trump, this one guy was very racist and that's why mm -hmm. it's all wrong. And um, at least for me, like when I heard the news and stuff, I was like very mad and I was like very like, like I couldn't take it anymore. And I feel like lots of people are feeling that way, especially right now. And I think that's why, like, cause when people are upset, they want like justice, right? And mm -hmm. I think like a lot of people's concept of justice would be, you know, throwing people in jail or like, you know, getting the police to get them, which is why I think people like Andrew Yang decided to like, you know, say like, oh, New York needs more needs more cops right or something like that mm -hmm. um yeah. so what 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 do you feel like how do you feel about um other Asian figures like also I know like Daniel Day Kim like relying more on the police or um calling for more police action I mean I think that we have all been bred and conditioned from if we have lived in the United States our whole lives or for a large part of our lives um to think that police are safety I mean, that's what's been drilled into us from when we were very young, you know, from like, you know, cartoon shows that show like friendly cops, whether they are uh, friendly humans or friendly animals, you know, to like when you go to school and you're off, you're told like, you know, like if you need help, find a police officer, the police officer will help. So we're trained from a very young age to think of police as safety. And it takes a lot to like, recondition your your mind to say like, no, actually, you know, there are other forms of safety that would actually make us all more safe. I mean, in New York City, we have, um, I forget what the number is, but we have a giant police force. And with this giant police force, you would think that we would be one of the safest cities in the world. And we are not. We should not be, if you correlated the number of police officers to crime, New York City should not be experiencing all of this anti-Asian anti -Asian racist violence that is happening on the streets. 
you know, like we should actually be like, you know, I don't know, Norway or Sweden or something where people, you know, uh, walk around and do not fear being attacked. And instead, what we're seeing is we have, you know, a huge number of police officers and the money that might go into, say, mental health services or supportive housing or, you know, other things that might be violence prevention are instead going into the police budget. But police pretty much show up after harm and violence have been committed. Um, they're not, you know, like perhaps having a police officer on a corner might deter somebody from punching the grandmother on that specific corner, but it does not stop them then from going to find, you know, to going to find somebody else to do that. But what a police officer cannot do and does not do is say like, what are the root causes of why this person, you know, A, feels that it is okay to go around punching anybody on the street, and B, what are some of the underlying causes that need to be addressed? Does this person have mental health issues? Do they need medications? Do they have trouble accessing their medications? You know, did they just lose their job recently? Did they lose, you know, their housing? What are all of the like other tangle of things that are leading to this violence? Because otherwise then just arresting this person and putting them in prison does not stop the next racist from attacking somebody. You know, it takes that person out of the mix but it's just kind of like one of those, uh, I don't know, one of those video games where you like, you know, get rid of one villain and another one just pops up in its place. So it's not addressing the root causes and it's not eradicating the violence. It's basically like, you know, putting a Band-Aid on this situation. Right. So um, what would you say like would be justice for like um, these perpetrators or like for the, or these communities? Well, I don't want to say what you know, one person's justice or idea of justice might look like. So if we take the uh, the grandmother in, I believe it was San Francisco, the one that the one that beat up her attacker. Right, right. You know, when, when he, you know, she was standing on the street corner, she was punched, you know, and she picked up whatever she could find and she beat him up. You know, he was on a stretcher, she was, you know, but she still suffered. Um, and there was a giant GoFundMe, there was a giant fundraising attempt and she, you know, people donated nearly a million dollars towards her healthcare, whatever she needs. I mean, she has PTSD, she's afraid to leave the house, her eye was swollen, she couldn't see out of it. And she decided to donate that money back to different Asian American community groups because she wants the violence to stop. So what would justice look like? Justice might look like, um, having more community resources, you know, whether it is people who can help people, you know, help people who are more, more vulnerable to like go out and about during their day, you know, more mental health and community resources to address why this kind of violence happens, you know, and do violence prevention, which is again, not a short term project. It's a longer term project, but if we want to be safe five days from now, five weeks from now, five years from now, we want to invest in these longer term projects and not just have the quick fix of, you know, uh, hate crimes unit, go to Chinatown for the next two weeks. And then, you know, but that doesn't address why are people doing these things and what is emboldening them? You know, what messages have they gotten from political leaders, uh, community leaders, religious leaders, you know, about this that has emboldened them to act in these kinds of ways. Right. Um, it, justice might also look like you know, like the attacker being responsible for paying all of her medical bills, you know, so that she is not burdened by 
all of the medical copays that are going to, you know, come up when she's got to go and, you know, deal with her eyes or when she, if she has to go to counseling, it might look like, you know, if she has to hire a home health aide to help her, you know, with all of her daily tasks, you know, him being responsible for paying for that so that she would be able to, you know, like move about her house and do these things and not put that burden on her. It might look like her saying, you know, I want you to go to anti-racist trainings and I want you to go see a professional psychologist, you know, and a counselor as well, because you need to control whatever is happening inside your head that made you think it was okay to punch me. You know, like those are all options, whether those are the options that are, that would seem right for her, I don't know. Um, but these are all options that we can think of if we say, what else might safety look like if we're not looking at policing for safety, if we're not looking at prisons for safety? What is it that would help us? And I mean, um, in New York on Monday, there was, I don't know if you saw, if, if the video was reached where you are, um, there was a Filipina woman who was walking to church, I think, in the morning. Mm -hmm. And she was violently attacked by a homeless man, you know, outside a building in midtown Manhattan. And I mean, the, the video is brutal, right? Like he kicks her. You can't hear the audio, but apparently he said, you don't belong here. Every time she gets up, he kicks her in the head. You know, there are two doormen in a building that are just watching. They don't do anything. Um, and then the guy storms off. So, and then later on, and the man was later arrested and it turned out that uh, he had been in prison previously for killing his mother and had been allowed out on parole, was currently homeless and like living in one of these homeless shelters or, you know, uh, something close to a homeless shelter. And so it makes me wonder, like, what, what were all the things that went wrong? You know, so, okay, even setting aside the fact that you killed your mother. Okay, so you were in prison. What services were there and were there not? that address this because that is obviously a terrible and violent action to kill somebody, you know, and the fact that you killed your mother, you know, like I think says so much about your need for mental health services. Even if it comes out that the mother was abusive or whatever, whatever, you still need mental health help, which we know prisons do not offer in any sort of uh, holistic way. Um, was he on medications that allowed him to function because he was allowed out on parole? So for your listeners that don't um, know about parole, parole is when somebody goes before a parole board. In New York, it's two to three parole commissioners. And they look through your files and then they ask questions. So it's a parole interview. And you have to make the case for why you have been rehabilitated, you are not a danger to the community and you should be released from prison. So obviously this man was functional enough that two to three separate people said, okay, we will give you another chance to be out in the world, to live your life. We don't think you were a threat to society. And then he came out in November. So what happened between November and March that caused him to, you know, to downslide? Was he on medications in prison that stabilized him and was not able to access them? Um, when he came home or when he got out, he doesn't have a home, you know, like, uh, did he have a supportive group of friends in prison that made sure that, you know, like if he was starting to get a little bit out of whack 
you know, um, they were like, hey, are you eating? Are you sleeping? Are you, you know, let's go play ball. Let's like, was, did he have some sort of support system or support network that he does not have living in a homeless shelter? Like, what are all the things that are missing here that we don't see? And then why don't we have those things on the outside as well? Because again, it's sort of like taking him out of the equation only works in that he does not attack somebody else on the street, but it doesn't mean that every single other racist person is not still emboldened to attack people. Right. Justice might, again, look like, you know, like uh, better mental health services, better support services for people who are leaving prison, saying if you are going to imprison somebody, you can't just stick them in a cell for 16 years and then let them out on the street and hope that they are somehow better and are not going, you know, and are not going to harm people, you actually have to provide them with programs and services so that that way you actually are helping people change their lives, which is not what prisons do now. Right. So I'm hearing, like, what I'm hearing is that um, prisons are like, and policing is just extremely ineffective and like kind of, like you said, a band-aid solution. Yes. I mean, the United States has 5% of the world's total population and between 20 and 25% of the world's prison population. So we wow. should, with those numbers, be the safest nation in the world. And as we are seeing again and again and again, we are not. I mean, there was, you know, this shooting in Georgia happened. And then this week there's a shooting in Colorado. So, I mean, the fact that we just keep seeing these instances of extreme violence means that this idea of just locking people up is not working. Do you also believe that like not only are prisons and policing um like they just they're not effective but they're also kind of harmful to like communities marginalized communities especially like you know communities of color and some some cases the Asian American community? Yes I mean what we see is again and again um what I said earlier about state violence and institutional violence get carried out often by police. So, I mean, we have instances in which people who are experiencing mental health crises, including Asian people, um, their family members or loved ones don't know what to do. So they call 911, hoping for an ambulance, hoping for some intervention that will help their loved one who is experiencing a mental health crisis. And instead, what they get is an armed police officer who kills their loved one instead. So, I mean, that is an extreme example, but it is not an infrequent example. So it happens more often than it definitely should. Um, and then we often, we see that um, police in neighborhoods often um, discriminate against people. We've seen this in New York with stop and frisk where uh, most of the people who were stopped and frisked tended to be black and brown, even though uh, they were not necessarily, you know, like carrying anything more illegal than white, their white counterparts. Um, we also see this in the way that police respond to uh, calls for help. I mean, in uh, many black and brown communities, people don't trust the police because they have seen again and again that when they call for help, the police don't show up or if they show up, they make the situation worse. Um, in many immigrant communities, including many Asian communities, there's also that same distrust of the police. And then you add on, um, language barriers and xenophobia on the part of the police. And you say like, well, why should people, you know, trust, you know, this uh, 
this institution that they are not seeing helping them with their day-to-day. Um, and instead what they're seeing is they're not doing very much. And then if they do show up, you know, they often make things worse. And at the same time, what we see, we're again also pounded with this idea that like safety equals policing. So you do have people like Andrew Yang and Daniel Day Kim um, saying like, you know, we need more policing. We are going to offer a bounty on, uh, on this on this person's head because we don't know what else to do. I think one of the insidious effects of policing and mass incarceration is that it shrinks our imagination. So instead of saying, how can we as a community keep each other safe? You know, it might be like more streetlights, you know, like it might be like, you know, more this, more that, you know, like how do we keep each other safe? We say, I guess we can only rely on the police to keep each other, to keep us safe. Like there's nothing that I can do as, you know, an individual or we can do as, you know, me and four of my neighbors or we can do as a building or a block association to be able to uh, combat, you know, violence. And I mean, we've seen also in California, there have been like uh, community ambassador programs in the Oakland Chinatown. There have been like other types of volunteer community patrols who are not acting as the police, but they actually are saying like, we have a presence here. You cannot come and terrorize our community. You know, like, uh, but they aren't armed. They're not, you know, like threatening violence to people. They're saying we are here to make sure nothing happens. And sometimes that making sure nothing happens might be, I'm going to go help this, you know, this grandma and grandpa with their groceries. You know, like, do you need help carrying all those things, you know, from here to there? You know, which I should add, police officers are actually not allowed to do. I, you know, when my daughter was very small and in the stroller, I remember like struggling with a couple of bags and like my stroller. um, And it was during one of New York City's blackouts. And the police were like, it's not safe, you know, like we're gonna walk you to your door. And I said, well, I don't really want you to walk me to my door, I don't care. But you know, if you could kind of help me with some of this stuff, you know, and they were like, no, we can't do that. You know, and it's like, but really like, you know, like, the thing that would make me a target is the fact that I'm struggling with a stroller and like three bags, not the fact that, you know, there is a blackout or that I don't have a police escort, you know, watching me struggle with all of my bags. I'm actually very thankful that you brought up the uh, what's happening in Oakland with like the escort system, but there's, there's also one in uh, San Francisco. Like, obviously people are looking for actions now, right? Would you say that like, a big part of like what we can do to protect our communities is to like actually like volunteer mm-hmm. and just like start escorting people or is there anything more? Um, like, uh, so, so there've been like, you know, like uh, people that escort people, you know, um, and not just in Chinatown, like there's like a long history of that. Um, I also want to point to some of the other like longer term work people have been doing. Like um, in New York, it's a longtime group, I think since the 1970s, called CAV, Committee Against Anti-Asian Violence. I think now that they like, you know, like I think uh, they've kept the acronym CAV and they're, they're naming something else now and I forget what it is. But they have been working not only against interpersonal violence, but they've also been working around things like gentrification. How do, you know, like the fact that like as New York rents are rising and people are, you know, uh, landlords are trying to squeeze some of their long-term tenants out, including many people who are, you know, Asian immigrants and who have been there for a long time. So they work around that. They work around uh, working, working conditions in Chinatown. 
for among people who don't necessarily speak the language, don't know what their rights are, you know, might think that they don't have rights. Um, so it's like looking at all of these types of uh, forms of violence as well. So, I mean, it might seem like they, again, like they might seem that they are disconnected, but again, if you don't have resources, then you are more at risk of being in situations where you might be vulnerable to violence. Like if you have to walk late at night through a fairly deserted area because you cannot afford, you know, to take a car or, you know, take the bus or whatever, you know, like, or if you work a job that lets you out at two in the morning, you're more vulnerable to violence because that tends to be when those kinds of, you know, when violence happens more often. Um, if you are displaced from your home and you have to live further away from the community where you have a support network and your friends and people who will help keep you safe, you know, that is, that makes you more vulnerable to violence as well as just being displaced and being economically exploited are also forms of violence in and among themselves. Um, in Seattle, there's the Massage Parlor Outreach Project, which works specifically with, in Seattle's international district, uh, with Chinese speaking massage parlor workers. And what they do is they build relationships with them. And again, this is a slow build. It's not as instantaneous as like you call, you know, you pick up the phone, you call 911 and you hope nobody shoots you. Um, but they go and they like, you know, like go and they say like, you know, here's information about COVID, here's information about where to get tested, where they won't ask about your immigration status. And the day after the shootings in Atlanta happened, they went and they visited all the massage parlor workers that they had built connections with over the past year. And I want to be clear that they only uh, visit Chinese speaking massage parlor workers because that's who they have to, uh, that's the languages that the volunteers speak right now. Right. Not necessarily because they think other people are not worthy of this, but they were like, this is who we have that speaks, you know, this language so we can communicate with you. We're like, yes, there are people who are Korean, there are people who are Vietnamese, there are people who are Thai, you know, working in massage parlors, but we don't have a way to, you know, build that kind of connections with them right now. Um, so they went around the next day and they talked to them and they said, would, you know, like, you know, how are you feeling in the wake of these shootings? And first, half of them didn't even know about it because the Chinese language media had yet to report this in Seattle. So then they had to tell them and people were scared. Uh, they said, what would you need? You know, and there was a variety of answers. Some said like, we want more self-defense trainings. We want um, like more community patrols. We want, um, you know, but, uh, like sometimes like, you know, like, like we need to figure out safety strategies, but none of them said that they wanted more police because they saw that, you know, like police, you know, end up bringing violence with them. And especially when you look at uh, people who are doing work like massage work, whether it's tied to sex work or not, there's the assumption that if there are Asians working in a massage parlor, they must be providing sexual services. Um, even if that is not the case. I mean, we see this in, you know, one of the shootings and uh, one of the spas that was targeted in Atlanta. You know, you look at the ages of the women, you look at the fact that there was a couple that was getting, you know, massages in separate rooms and they were, you know, like it was not, um, they were not providing sexual services. But there's again, this assumption that if you are Asian and you work in a massage parlor, you know, you are doing this criminalized sex work. Um, so they've been doing work where they like, you know, say like, what do you need for safety? 
you know, but they are able to ask these questions because they've built a relationship where they show up and they're like, you know, like here's information about where to get the COVID vaccine. Here's information about, you know, like this, that, or the other, you know, like protecting yourself from COVID and that type of thing. And at the same time, I think it also requires the community to reach out and not also say like, oh, our community consists of these people, but we don't like those massage parlor workers over there. You know, we think that they might provide sexual services. So because, you know, like, like it or not, they are part of the community. And I think that, you know, people often target people, uh, men who target women for kind of like, I don't want to, um, for these kind, this kind of extreme violence, typically target women that they think will not be missed or that nobody will care about, such as sex workers. Um, I mean, in the case of the Atlanta shooting, you know, the, the man who was arrested for the shootings had a whole twisted, you know, idea around right. like sex, Asian women, his own sexuality, what he needed to do, um, you know, uh, and he had all sorts of twisted justifications for why he was targeting them, you know, but at the same time, we have to ask like, you know, what are the other things that, you know, like led to this? Like, what are the conditions that made him think that Asian women working in a massage parlor or a spa were, you know, the targets that he should choose as opposed to saying, maybe I should go to therapy or maybe I'm 21 and sex is a normal part of life. Maybe I should, you know, just not be so, maybe I should not be so uptight that it comes out in this form of extreme violence. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, I mean, at least for his case, is definitely like an amalgama amalgamation of like just like um, history of like fetishization of Asian women and um, also like far right extremism and online spaces and stuff. It's just mm -hmm. um, to me, it would kind of seem like the more you look at it, like uh, all of these things are kind of connected, like, you know, like racism, crime, patriarchy, stuff like that. And I think like, I, like, I agree with what you said that like it kind of takes a community to work worth examining to like really prevent crime and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. So how can Asian American youth organize at this time? I think one of the things is um, figure out what else is happening in your community because you don't necessarily have to work from the ground up. Like, so, you know, like it might be that there are already uh, community efforts towards safety that you can plug into. And if there are, then by all means, just go plug into them. But you also might say like, hey, what are the ways that we can organize for safety, say in our school? Or in, you know, like if people are going to in-person school or in our neighborhood, you know, so that, that way it might say like, you know, like, hey, we're typically in this area anyway, or between the hours of like three and six. We have some time because you know like we don't have to be home yet we don't have to start doing our homework till later you know like what are ways in which we can kind of be a presence in the community but also be helpful so not just standing around looking like mean and tough and scaring everybody else in the community but you know what are things that might be helpful hey maybe there's you know like um you know like something that is happening some place that it might be extremely problematic you know in terms of violence or the potential for violence, what can we do about that? You know, do, do we go there and try to like escort people? Do we, you know, like 
you know, call our local politicians and say, hey, that streetlight is broken and, you know, or whatever it is that um, is causing that. And then also like reaching out and building with other people. So it's not just, you know, like uh, this small group of friends being like, what should we do? But again, looking around and seeing what else is happening. Um, there's an example in Orange County where there was a, an Asian family that moved in in February and they immediately started getting harassed by a whole bunch of white kids, uh, like some as young as 10, you know, but up to teenagers where they would like throw rocks at them, they would ring their doorbell and then like run away. But this would go on at all hours of the night. So like, you know, like, so it wasn't just like one or two incidences. And so the family like installed like these like uh, fences, you know, around their property, they installed floodlights. They went to great expense to be like, God, you know, we, we moved here so that like we'd have like a nice place to live. We didn't move here to be terrorized. And these white kids still kept coming and terrorizing them. They threw rocks at their window. And the neighbors noticed what was happening. This is a mostly white area. And they said, you know what? This is messed up. So what they did was they organized. It wasn't patrols. It was more like a presence you know, where they organized so that every night there'd be a group of other neighbors just kind of hanging out on the porch or on the lawn as a deterrent, you know? And then when the kids came to throw rocks, you know, at one point, one of the neighbors uh, filmed them and then posted on Facebook, like, look, you know, it's like Michael, Mitchell, Joni, and John, you know, that are doing this, you know, like, and some of the teenagers probably, you know, prompted by their parents came over and apologized. Uh, but also one teenager's parents threatened to sue for libel. So we can kind of see why this teenager, where this teenager got her terrible racist beliefs. But you know, the thing is the community saw that somebody was being targeted again and again and again. And they were like, what can we do to help? And they came up with a solution. They granted didn't like totally make the problem go away, but you know, like it made the family feel safer, but it also made them feel like they were wanted and part of the community, not like they were left to themselves to deal with these attacks over and over. So it might also be like, look around and see what else is happening and then say like, how can I be part of the solution? You know, and again, it might be something that might not be as flashy as patrolling around the neighborhood with like a bright orange vest or, you know, like chasing off racist people with a stick, but it might be, you know, like, hey, how can I help? You know, like maybe I can escort, you know, Asian seniors, maybe, oh, there's this work, there's this group doing this longer term work against gentrification or, you know, for immigrant rights or, you know, towards these other things. If you are bilingual, maybe you could say, hey, I can, you know, go help people navigate how to get a COVID vaccine. And then maybe say, hey, do you feel safe going from your house to go get the COVID vaccine? Do you want me to, you know, do you want me to escort you to the building, wait outside the building and then like escort you? back to your house if that is an issue. So it might just be seeing again, what's around, what other people are doing and how you can plug in. Do you have anything else that you would like to add? I think know the history of this country, you know, as well. I mean, we, it has come up again and again and again these past couple of weeks that we are not taught very much about the history of Asians in the United States. Uh, we, you know, are taught about uh, black people, we are taught about uh, the Native American people that have not been wiped out by Andrew Jackson and everybody who came before and after him. But we are not really taught about the history of Asians in America. And so then 
people fall back on this idea of the model minority where, you know, like we somehow strive to do well and we do well and it erases everybody who strives to do well and has not been economically rewarded in the United States. It erases people who have been targets of violence and it erases the country's long history of racist and institutional violence against Asians that also gets manifested as, you know, um, as interpersonal violence as well. So I think it, when you know this history, then you say, okay, you know, what can I do that starts to dig up the roots of this problem? So, I mean, if we think of like the, um, the violence that's happening now, it's like some sort of plant, whatever plant you want to think of with deep, deep roots. And we can just pluck off the leaves or the flowers or the flower petals, you know, of this plant. But if we're not reaching down and starting to like pull out those roots, then they just come, it just comes back the next year as something else, um, or it comes back in the next two years as something else. And then we are at the same point again. And then we're having the same conversation again about what can we do, as opposed to saying, okay, you know, like we have gotten to this point, now what more can we do? Um, is there anywhere that people can find you on like social media? Uh, I am on Twitter, Twitter, uh, uh, Victoria Law or L-V-I-K-K-I-M-L. Um, that's pretty much all I do for social media. Um, and you can find my writings at victorialaw.net. Well, um, thank you for coming on to my show. I really appreciate it. Yes. All right. Thank you for covering this. <laughs>